Welcome to St. James. Glad you guys are here. Um, there you go. Welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream too. Glad that you're uh, worshiping with us. Um, let's go over some announcements real quick. And I'm not going to, um, all the stuff that's for this week is, uh, is normal. So uh, youth, youth confirmation right after this and then prayer tonight. Uh, look at the announcement about youth group on Tuesday. Uh, there's some information you need to know as far as what to wear to that. Um, Furniture downstairs, uh, CCLS is going to purchase us some new furniture for the common area down there. So there's a couch and a couple of seats and also that old piano that's down there. If anybody wants any of that, like you can come and take it. Get a hold of Cheryl if you're interested in that stuff. Um, next Sunday, the VBS day is going to be, as Jen describes it, a combination one-day VBS and church picnic. So this is for everybody. So please feel, for, it's from 12 to 3, uh, Stokowski's are providing some smoked meat, and uh, there's going to be other stuff available. Uh, uh, so bounce houses, yes. Snow cones, cornhole. one day. Yes, okay. Thanks, Jen, for that. And is there still the sign-up sheet in there? Or just talk to Eric. Talk to Eric Robinson, and he will uh, he'll get you set up with what you need to do. So, uh, good. That'll be next Sunday, right after uh, church. There's also the av advertisement. The notice in there about the micro-school aid, if anybody wants to, uh, you can go ahead and read that. But if anybody wants to participate in that, uh, uh, call the people at CCLS there on the list or email them and let them know your interest. They're looking for some aids to help the guides. So, uh, last thing, new members class is going to start in uh, the end of this month, July 25th. That's a Sunday evening. It's going to happen at, from 6.30 to 8. Anybody who wants to come to is more than welcome to come to that. Let me know if you're interested. And it's a pretty good time. Like We're just going to sit around and talk about the Bible and uh, eat donuts. And uh, there's a handful of people already signed up. Let me know if you'd like to participate in that. Okay, I think that's all we, all we have in the way of notices. Let's go ahead and stand, and then we'll pray. Let's pray. God, we need you every hour. We need you so much. There's not a single second of our lives that we can exist without you. And especially right now this morning, Father, we need your power to be who you've called us to be. We want to be on mission with you, and we don't want to be discouraged when it doesn't go well. And we need 
uh, the power of your word as we study Mark 6 this morning, especially your Holy Spirit working by and with your word to work the gospel out in our hearts so that we can be on mission with you as an act of worship, as an act of uh, loving connection with you. But we can't do this on our own. We need your help. And so we're praying in the name of your son, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would empower us for justice this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's then confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Psalms from Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Ezekiel chapter 2, and um, it's connected to the gospel reading. You'll see why when we get to the gospel reading. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who've rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from 2 Corinthians 12. I have to set this up. So if you've been tracking with us through 2 Corinthians, you'll remember that Paul is arguing to the church at Corinth that he is the one true apostle and not the dynamic, well-spoken, engaging, attractive, wealthy people who claim to be apostles, but he, and they know that he's the apostle because he's been in prison and shipwrecked and he's gotten beaten up several times and he's not a very good public speaker and nobody really likes him. That's his credentials. That's how you know because he suffers with Jesus. Now in 2 Corinthians 12, I'm sorry, give me 10 seconds to set this up. He's going to talk about this vision, that he, this, this experience that he had where most, uh, most scholars believe that Paul's talking about himself here. And he's saying it's this ecstatic experience where he was transported into the throne room of God. And this is kind of a backhanded way of saying, if I wanted to boast, I could boast. Have you ever stood in the throne room of God? But actually, I'd rather not boast about that. I'd rather boast about my own weaknesses because that's my real credentials, okay? Paul says, I must go on boasting. Here's a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of snarkiness there. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, so again, that's talking about him. But by the way, third heaven, um, ancient cosmology. The first heaven is the place where the birds fly. The second heaven is the place where the stars are. The third heaven is the place where the deities dwell. So when Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven, it's his way of saying, in their culture, I went into the throne room of God. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So basically saying is like, I could be like the super apostles. I could come in here and I could tell you about these great experiences I have. I'm not going to do that, though, because when you see me, I want you to see Jesus. Not this guy who's had these great experiences of God in heaven. So, 
To help him out, here's what God does, verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, of going up to the third heaven, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. We don't know what this was, if it was some sort of like physical problem or mental health issue, but it's something that makes him extremely uncomfortable. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. 
Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own households in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So a couple things I want to do this morning. I want to look first, if we can, back at verses 7 through 13. And this is going to be a little bit of a summary of what we've done the past month or so as we've been working our way through Mark and thinking about Jesus' mission and how we can be on mission with him. So a lot of this is going to be a repeat. And it's just kind of a nice summary because this is the first time the disciples are not with Jesus, like in person doing mission, but sent out by Jesus doing mission. And so this this is... uh, I mean, there's some good stuff in here that's going to be familiar for if you've been here the past couple of months, but maybe some new stuff too. I think, so I found like, um, what is it, uh, five, six things I kind of want to point out from verses 7 through 13 about mission and being on mission. And, and the first one is that it always involves an announcement. So, you know, Jesus and the disciples, sometimes they do great and mighty works, uh, but they always are saying, they're, they're always making this particular announcement. And the announcement is, well, so let's just look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, which that's, what they, that's the announcement here. The disciples are traveling from village to village telling people to repent. This is shorthand, by the way, for in Mark chapter 1, that it's a very, very controlling text right at the beginning. Jesus comes into Galilee and says, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent's a part of that. Repent here is shorthand for that. There's an announcement. You make it an, part, of, part of being on mission is announcing that Jesus is the Lord of the universe and now everything changes. Well, so what does that have to do with repentance, which is the word that uh, Mark uses in verse 12? So, repentance. We're supposed to, we're supposed to uh, announce the kingdom and invite people to repent. You and I probably have this idea of repentance as giving up individual sins. You know, I need to repent of losing my temper at my wife. I need to repent of uh, being greedy. I need to repent of being lazy. You know, I need to repent of whatever it is. So there's these individual sins that we have to repent of. Actually, 
in the Gospels, the whole Bible, but in the Gospels, repentance isn't giving up individual sins. I'm not saying that, you, you know, our individual sins, we shouldn't give them up. That's not the point, though. The point of repentance is much bigger than that. It's this shift from viewing life and living life one way and radically altering it to live and think about life a completely different way. When, so when Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, what he's saying is, is give up your way of being Israel and trust me for my way of being Israel. So stop planning revolution against Rome. Stop trusting in uh, the temple complex and start trusting me for my way of being Israel. Now, why am I, I need to unpack this just for a second because I, 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 I have what I think is a good reason, and it's this. is because some of you, not all of us, some of us struggle with individual sins. There are parts of our life that we don't like, that we wish were different, that we, you know, like God help me, you know, whatever, help, help me give up smoking or whatever. So we have these individual parts of our life that we want to change, but we don't make a lot of headway on them. And the reason why is because you can give up an individual sin and still not have repented. <clears throat> Excuse me, I can, change my, I can change individual things about my behavior or about my speech patterns, but unless I radically have my worldview and like, the direction that my life is facing radically turned, I mean, that's the foundation upon which all these other little sins are built. And unless that gets changed, that foundation is going to keep on growing up these other little bit sins. Let, let me give you an example. So we all have individual sins that we, we struggle seeing our own individual sins. That's just reality. We're all like that. But we're, it's easy for us to see the individual sins of other people and other groups, right? So in, in our culture, there are sins of the cultural left and there are sins of the cultural right. Some of the sins of the, one of the, one of the, sins of the cultural left is this notion that truth is relative, like we should, you know, truth is uh, uh, c culture specific. It's it's constructed by individuals or cultures, and so I have my truth, and you have your truth, and we on the cultural right, we look at that and we say, no, that's that's not true. Like if truth exists, it's like an absolute thing. It's like you can't just decide that it's because you believe it, it's true for you, and if you don't believe it, it's not true for you. That's not the way truth works. So it's easy for us to notice that, right? And so on the, the, the cultural right, though, we can look at their sins and say stuff like, well, you just don't care for people. Like, you, you just don't, you don't have hearts of compassion. Maybe for your own family or your own, you know, group. But like, as far as culture at large, you just don't have hearts of compassion. And for, for those of, uh, you know, people on the cultural right, like, it's hard to see that. It's like, we don't, yes, we do. You know, we get all defensive. But people on the cultural left can see that real easy. Now, what's the problem here? The problem is, is that there's an underlying foundational sin that neither the cultural left nor the cultural right has repented of yet. And that is good old-fashioned American individualism, which says, if it's true for me, me, that's it. No questions asked. I decide what's true for me. Or, this is my life. It's my property. It's my paycheck. It belongs to me. Both of these are sins that grow up out of the sin of individualism. Unless that gets, you know, unless you stop trusting America for being this is a good Fourth of July message, right? Stop trusting the American dream for your way of being human and start trusting Jesus for his way of being human. The other sins, cultural left, cultural right, and lots of sins in between, are going to keep on popping up. There's no way to stop them. So when the disciples go through and they say, repent, what they're saying is something new and fresh is here a new way of being human. 
a God way of being human, not, not politically oriented. We're not, you know, the, the, the question here is not, are we going to kind of like go along with the Romans or are we going to stage a revolution against Rome or how are we going to, that's not the question. The question is, it's not a question at all, it's just a statement. God has become flesh and he's now here to be the God of the Romans and the Sadducees. Full stop. And the disciples call us, Jesus tells the disciples to call us to repent, to transfer you know, our way of being human over and not try to blend them. Not to say, well, like, you know, Jesus is really on the cultural left side or Jesus on the, no, 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 it's, it's a repentance. It's not syncretism. It's not pulling Jesus in to sort of co-opt him to say, well, our values are the really true ones. See, we got Jesus on our side. But to repent, to turn. One more quick thing about this repentance too, and this is a little bit of a side note. Uh, give me two minutes to do a commercial here. Like it's, it's clearly, it's, this is offensive, right? I mean, the disciples are traveling around, going into villages and saying, hey, you need to repent. You need to change your way and we'll tell you how to do it. It's obviously, I mean, you guys, anybody who tries to tell people like, hey, Jesus is Lord of the universe, you, get, you, you, you know that this feels offensive. Other people think it's offensive. And so people are going to say, like, repent. You can't tell people to repent. That's really none of your business. Like, that's offensive to tell. You should stop telling people to repent because that's offensive. So I just want to point this out real quick. Again, this is a side point to the sermon. Okay, so you say that I shouldn't tell people to repent because it's offensive. So what you're saying, though, is that you're telling me I should repent of me telling other people to repent because it's offensive. Do you see what's going on here? You're saying your worldview is wrong. You should change it and agree with my worldview. That's what, you, that's what we say. When somebody says, hey, you can't claim that Jesus is the only way. That's offensive. You're actually saying, no, 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 your ideology, philosophical pluralism, is the only way and that Christians should change the way they think to match up with it. This, I'm not arguing that Christianity is true here. I'm just pointing out the inconsistency of any sort of philosophical relativism or postmodernism that would say that Christianity has no right to tell other people how to live. Well, just by saying that, you're telling Christianity how to live. Right? That, I mean, my only point is, I don't really have a point. Does everybody smell the, hypo the hypocrisy about that? Because just, if you do or you don't, like, so just a head now, we're not wearing masks anymore, so you can, you can like, okay, so good. Everybody gets that. that. What the disciples here are is not offensive, it's inevitable. If you, like, if you have an ideology or a worldview that you care two cents about, you're going to tell other people about it. That's not offensive, it's just the way worldviews work. Don't let yourself be cornered by, oh gosh, that right, that's right. This person's yelling at me, telling me I'm not being very nice and so I should be quiet. Maybe that, maybe that. No, no, actually, this is the way worldviews work. Okay, I'll move on. That, that fell kind of flat. I was hoping for like some sort of a bigger response than that. I'll make a note. In three years, I won't, I won't include that in there. So the announcements, that, the, by the way, along with announcement is this, is that the, the point is not telling people you should agree with me. That's not the point. The point is saying Jesus is Lord. It has nothing to do with me, right? This isn't like a power play. I hope it's not, although it's, sometimes it's for me. I'm not trying to get you to agree with me because it, like, I need you to agree with me. Hopefully, like, please God, forgive me. Like, it's just the fact. If Jesus is Lord of the universe, he's Lord of the universe. More on that in a second. So there's an announcement. Second of all, there's healing. Uh, verse 13, um, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples were anointing with oil many who were sick and healing them. Um, 
Uh, yes, this is physical healings. Um, it's not them just being nice and taking care of sick people. That's a part of it. But this is a kingdom announcement. The, in the prophets, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, it is announced that when the Messiah comes and starts to put things to rights again, that the effects of the fall are going to be fought against. That the Messiah, Jesus, is going to start turning back the effects of the fall. And sometimes that includes physical healings. Not all the time. There was, Jesus didn't heal everybody in Nazareth. That's clear from the first six verses. But sometimes Jesus heals people as a sign of new creation. I talked about this last week. I'm not going to go into, into it too much. But it's definitely a part of the apostles' ministry. Taking care of people, taking care of people in their health needs, financial needs, social needs, mental health needs, as a sign of new creation is what Christians are called to do. And so, so, so maybe you'll say, okay, so you mean, you mean like naturally. This is supernatural healings, but you mean like naturally. And I'm saying, no, 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 don't, don't do the natural, supernatural thing. In the New Testament, there's no division between natural and supernatural. Jesus is Lord of the universe. There isn't like this pocket where he like, I hang out over here in supernatural land. Natural land, I, you guys do what you want. No, he's Lord of the whole thing. When Jesus heals people, whether it's because he did some miraculous thing, uh, talk to Harry sometime, or whether it's because they go to the doctor and the doctor treats them, it's Jesus who's doing this. It's a new creation sign, okay? All right, um, uh, casting out demons is the third one. So we got announcement, healing, and then casting out demons. That's in verse 13 too. They cast out uh, many demons. Uh, Jesus tells them to do it up in verse 7. Calls the twelve, sends them out two by two, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Um, uh, what's going on with this? Casting out demons. That's very superstitious too to us uh, Westerners who don't believe in such nonsense as uh, uh, boogeymen and things like that. Um, we, we run into a problem in our culture because we we don't we're too smart for that superstitious evil stuff. But we all know that there's such a thing as evil. I'm not talking about not nice people. What do you do with a Hitler? You know, somebody who's so deeply and darkly depraved. What do you do with a guy who walks into a movie theater or to a nightclub and just starts shooting people? Do you just say, well, yeah, quirk, you know, maybe he was sick or... Those are fine conversations, but ultimately we all know that there is actually a thing called evil. It's dark and it's oppressive. We all sense it. Our philosophical categories in our culture don't allow us to acknowledge it, though, because we don't believe in boogeymen. There's no, evil isn't personal. And second of all, philosophically, since we're relativist, we don't actually believe that evil exists. Uh, uh, to, to quote uh, uh, Lord Voldemort, book one, if you need a reference. Uh, there's no such thing as good or evil. There's only power in those two weaknesses. So philosophically, like evil's not a thing. Like if, if, if I'm an animal and you're an animal, if I come up with my own truth and you come up with your own truth and your truth happens to be genocide or slapping your wife around or cutting people off in traffic, who am I to say that that's wrong? I don't have the philosophical language to say that you're wrong for you know, beating your wife or yelling at your kids or, or stealing from your work. Because there's no such thing as good or evil. The only way that you have a good or evil that allows you to say, it's wrong to beat your wife, racism is wrong, it's wrong to steal from your workplace, is if there's a God in the center of the room that says, I will tell you what's right and wrong. If he's not there and I, I have my own truth and you have your own truth, there's no way to have the language to talk about good or evil. 
And so what we're stuck with is a world where evil is increasing. Just check out your Yahoo news feed. But we don't have the language to grapple with it because we've rejected a God who actually has the power to fight evil. And what the, what the disciples are doing is saying, no, we have a God who does. We're casting out demons because there is such a thing as evil, and that's who we're going after. We're going after the bad guy. We're, we are going to reverse. Jesus is going to reverse. Genesis chapter 3. They're casting out demons because there is such a thing as evil, and God is determined to destroy it. Okay, the fourth thing, uh, urgency. Uh, verse 8, he charged them, Jesus charges them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. That's kind of a weird thing. Hey, make sure you wear your sandals. Like, well, I'll, talk, well, I'll talk about why he says that in just a second. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So what's this about? Like, go, don't take food, live off the generosity of the communities that you're cold calling on, and just go and do it. Well, almost every commentary that I read said, this is not a paradigm for present day mission. You're not, so, you know, like say you're gonna go, like say you're gonna go work at the elementary school, you know, to be a part of our mercy ministry at the elementary school. You're not called to be like, well, I'm not supposed to take any money with me. And if I get hungry, I'll just go to the cafeteria and ask for food. That's not what's talking about here. Uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, the earliest church, they're making more steady provisions for mission. Like they're like staying in one place, many of them. Uh, they're calling elders and deacons. Paul and uh, Timothy and in Thessalonians is providing for elders to be uh, um, provided for so that they can study and pray and, and minister. So this is not a paradigm for ministry. But let me tell you what's going on. This is a little bit... Uh, I'll just, I'll just jump into this, and if you have questions, ask me about it later. What's up with the clothes that they're wearing? Well, the clothes that, the clothes that Jesus is saying that you uh, can wear on this trip, staff, he says, belt, sandals, he mentions sandals intentionally, and a tunic, not two tunics, but one tunic. These four items of clothing are the exact same four items of clothing that are mentioned in Exodus chapter 12, stay with me, Exodus chapter 12 when God tells Moses, you're leaving Egypt tonight and you're gonna go in a hurry and you're gonna be a slave people when the sun goes down and when the sun comes up, you are going to be a free nation, a holy priesthood to me. And I want you flying out of here. And so here's the four things you're gonna wear. And Jesus intentionally says these four things. Why? Because he's saying the new exodus is happening. The transition has happened. God is finally acting to do what the Exodus only pointed towards, and that is liberate humanity from bondage to sin. Liberate the creation from bondage to fall, fallenness. And I want you on the street and going because we've got to do this fast. Again, it's not the paradigm for all ministries everywhere, but for them, this new creation demanded this urgency. Now, all that to say this, is that we, what we can glean from this is that there is since God has acted to renew creation in Jesus Christ, there is an urgency here. We're not to just sort of sit around, but there's this sense that like, let's go and let's do this. You're allowed to own two coats, okay? I mean, it's not what's being forbidden here, but the sense of urgency we should share, okay? So there's urgency. Uh, uh, fifth, a community, verse seven. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Gee, nobody does solo ministry. Nobody does solo ministry in the Bible except for Jesus. 
because he's the only one who has all the spiritual gifts, so he gets to do it. Everybody else, though, is partial. I don't have every spiritual gift, and I have a ton of stuff about me that's actually working against spiritual gifts. I need you. I said, the, this occurred to me like several years ago. Does anybody know the, the name Henry Nowen? He's a, he's passed away now, but he was a Catholic priest. He was a professor at Harvard. He left his position at Harvard to be the chaplain of a home in Canada for mentally challenged people. And when he got there, he was ministering, and then he, you know, he's still doing some academic stuff, and he would travel around and give talks and whatnot. He was writing books. And he started as kind of a treat for the residents. He started like inviting one of them to travel with me. Like, you travel with me and we'll go along. And he said that he would take these, you know, these people along who, like, you know, they had, they had a lot of difficulties mentally. They weren't going to participate in some sort of academic seminar. But he said, well, I found when I would bring these people along that I would, that the ministry that I and this other person were doing was exponentially more powerful than the ministry I had ever done before on my own at these seminars. And he, said, he wrote a, a, a book about this. That I asked, I'll get you a copy of that if, if you want. And what he said was, I realized, was that there was body of Christ stuff going on. There were spiritual gifts that these people had that I didn't have. And by teaming up with people that were completely different than me, like the Holy Spirit was like doing this new, fresh thing that I could never accomplish on my own because I didn't have the gifts that this person had. That's what's going on here. Like, I, I don't, you, ministry, can, it's a very American thing, the individualism, remember? But you can't do ministry on your own. The body of Christ is where the Holy Spirit chooses to do its work. Jesus sends his disciples out in teams. Okay, last thing. I don't know a better way to say this besides uh, communicated responsibility. That's kind of lame. It's horrible, but I, I don't have time to work on it right now. Verse 11. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Okay, so what do I, what do I mean by a communicated responsibility? I mean, this, we don't have this in our culture. Like, if I go to your house and you say something to offend me, I, like, I don't stand on your front porch and, like, shake dust off my feet at you and then walk away. What does it mean? I, it's, maybe you think it has, like, this flavor of, like, judgment. It's actually not, though. It's, it's a pretty common, in the ancient world, it's a pretty common saying it's, it, it's mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the New Testament too. Basically what it just means is you're communicating responsibility. Like I've had my say. I've said what I want to say. You've chosen not to listen to me. I've done my part. I'm stepping away now. That's basically what it means. Actually in, Paul, in Acts chapter 18, Paul preaches in a synagogue and they reject him. And as he leaves, uh, Luke says, he shakes the dust off his feet and says, May your blood be upon your head, which I know that sounds like, like, oh, may the fire of judgment come down upon you. That's not what's going on here. Uh, later on, Jesus is going to have disciples that say, hey, you know, this village didn't like us. Do you mind if, like, ask God to blow it up? That'll be cool. And Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, what, is he, what he does is say, shake the dust off your feet, which means this. Let them, this is what Paul means. I've spoken the gospel. That's all I can do. I'm not going to sit here and berate you. I'm not going to try to emotionally manipulating you into making a decision for Jesus. I'm not going to like keep on quoting the small catechism to you until you're like, oh, I get it. You know the truth now. I'm going to step away and it's between you and God. That's, that's what it means. And so what he's saying here is communicate responsibility, two levels, to them. Like, okay, I've spoken the truth. 
you, if you want to be intellectually honest, are going to have to grapple with it. But, like, I've done my part, and now I'm saying, it's also communicating responsibility to you. It's not your responsibility to create results on mission. You speak the truth, you heal, you team up. That's all you do. Like, you can't make fruit. This is where we're headed in just a second, is that the results are never guaranteed because the results aren't up to you. That's what shaking the dust off your feet means, is like, this is between you and God at this point. I can't change this. Now, I guess the rest of the sermon is unpacking that because we're going to go up to the first six verses and we're going to look at, the, at, at, at what that means, that the results aren't guaranteed and sometimes not there. And the reason why I'm bringing it up this morning is because all of you who are doing kingdom work, and that's almost all of you, and so some of you are young yet and you don't know that you are and it's getting more intense, the older you get, I guess not older, but the more mature in the faith that you get, the more it weighs on you that you want God to do stuff. And what I want to do this morning is to take that burden off of you, not the passion for it, but the psychological burden that God needs to do stuff and I need to get him to do stuff. I want to take that away from you, looking at verses 1 through 6 by pointing out three things. First of all, sometimes Jesus didn't get results. Sometimes Jesus was on mission and nobody listened to him. They rejected him. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 6, right? Where did this man get these things? So this is actually, uh, um, I mean, they, they know who Jesus is, okay? Uh, archaeologists tell us that in the time of Jesus, Nazareth had max 200 people living in it. That's the membership of St. James. I mean, they know who Jesus, I mean, they know who his family is, right? They, they name his brothers and his mom. They know who Jesus is. What are they doing, though? They won't say his name. Actually, in Greek, it's more like, it's, it's, it's where did this man, that's what's in English, but in Greek, it's like, where did this guy get these things? It has that sort of flavor of like, kind of snarkiness. Where did this guy get these things? What's the wisdom given to this guy? Like, who does this guy think he is? Like, he waltzed, we know him. You know, we, we saw you playing stickball in the streets. Where do you get off walking in here and telling us what to do? And they don't listen to him because it says they took offense at him. They take offense at him in verse 3. Why is it that they take offense at him? Well, uh, probably the same reason they don't listen to people on mission, period, right? The, the, don't we know? Like, we know your brothers. Like, you, you don't think, like, we saw you grow up. We know James, Joseph. We know your brothers. We know your mom, Mary. By the way, that's also, you don't get this in English. That's actually a pretty low blow there. We know your mother, Mary. Super uncommon in the Jewish world, to refer to, any, to, to, to refer to somebody as anything other than um, the son of their father, even if their father's passed away. And almost always, Jesus is called Jesus, son of Joseph. So, oh, nerd stuff, five seconds. Three ways, Jews didn't have last names. Romans did, Jews didn't have last names. There was three ways Jews identified themselves. One was father's name. Two was a geographical location, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, three was... Uh, uh, your job, Jesus the construction worker, Jesus the carpenter. That's the only three ways. To call him Jesus the son of Mary is a way of saying, well, you know what they're saying. It's a way of calling him to question the provenance of his conception and birth. We know who your mom is. That's as far as we can go. You know, We don't know who your dad was. Jesus the son of Mary. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty low blow. Why? Because God uses ordinary things. So that's, that's, that's actually in a, a stumbling block to a lot of people, that God uses ordinary things to communicate himself. 
What do you mean God uses bread and wine to communicate himself? Like you can go to Schnucks and get a bunch of bread and wine and hardly pay any. It's just ordinary stuff, right? What, what do you mean God uses water to save people? That, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. Like water's just ordinary. Well, that's the whole point is that God does, or, like, I, I don't know. Why didn't God, when, when God was determined to, to, to come down to earth to rescue us, why didn't he come as like some sort of glowing 12-foot avatar with lightning bolts coming out of his fingers, like looking like Tom Brady or something? Why didn't he do that? That would have been impressive. He chose to do, he chose to be a construction worker. He chose to have thick, calloused hands. He chose to live in the lower class, not as some sort of like, like, you know, social statement, but because he wanted to be an ordinary human being. That's a stumbling block, always has been, always will be. Don't let it be a, by the way, don't let it be a stumbling block for you. It, it will be. So, so you're having a conversation with your kids or with your coworker or you're on mission, you know, like you're down at Granite City at the, at the, uh, the homeless shelter and you're down there. You ever thought about this? Okay, so there you are. You're in your jeans and your plaid shirt. You're middle-aged. You're a little bit overweight. You're not that smart. Everybody knows that you're corny. Who get, what, what gives you the right to think that you can actually speak gospel and the world starts to change? You've got no right to think that. You're ordinary. Yes, that's the point. God uses ordinary things. And sometimes people are going to look at it and say, we know your brother. We saw you grow up. Who, who, who do you think you are? What do you mean water can do that? What do you mean bread and wine can do What do you mean some loser in a white robe can stand up front and read the Bible and all of a sudden you're supposed to expect the world to change? God uses ordinary things. Always has, always will. It's an offense to some. It's glory to those who, of you who know Jesus. Second, second thing, though, is that it's just lack of faith, straight up lack of faith. Verses 5 and 6, he points this out. Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. It's not that Jesus was powerless to do a mighty work there, but it's because God always joins up salvation with relationship, always. God always, when God saves people, he pulls them into a trusting relationship with him. When that's lacking, Jesus is not going to do mighty miracles there. Again, let me point out, Jesus was in a spot where he was on mission and did not get results. All right, you're going to be on mission and not get results. That's going to happen. All right, let's uh, make some sense of this if we can. Here's the second point under here, and we're getting close to being done. Uh, verse three, last line, they took offense at him. Okay, so the rejection of Jesus in his hometown is a foretaste of the rejection he's going to experience when he goes to what should be his real home, his father's house, the temple in Jerusalem, and is completely shunned, cast out, ignored, and then murdered by the people who are in charge of his father's house. This is just a foretaste of what Jesus' life is going to be like. So have you noticed as we've been reading along in Mark? In Mark chapter 1 through 5, every, everything we've been reading is A plus material. Jesus walks into the uh, synagogue of Capernaum. He preaches the gospel. Demons are flying out of people. People are coming and following him. He's walking around to people's houses just touching people and they're like getting healed. He's preaching incredible things and people are like in mass following him. And then you get to chapter six and he goes to his hometown and he walks into the synagogue and preaches and crickets. Nothing. What's going on? 
He's getting rejected. This is what happens to Jesus. This is just the first time in Mark, but it's not the last time. And it's going to end up with him. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. He's going to get killed by the people that should have been close to him, by the people who should have loved him. By his own people, he's going to get killed. And somehow, a lot of you guys know this, somehow God has bound up the rejection of Jesus with the rescuing of the whole world. So Jesus is not teaching us material about how to live. Jesus is being killed so that salvation can happen. So Jesus, all of humanity, from Adam and Eve down to me standing up here, has a secret death wish, a wish that God would die. Now you, you, you're, you're, you're real pious. You're like, no, 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 I, don't, I love God. No, no, secretly down deep inside, you wish that you were God. Not all the time. But all of us from time to time wish that God was dead and I was God. That wish gets acted upon. We actually get to kill God, AD 33. But when it happens, all the death wishes that have ever gone his way throughout humanity, either before he was born or after his crucifixion and resurrection, all those death wishes get piled up onto him on the cross. He gets killed. We get what we want. He comes back, though, and we're left with nothing except for these empty dreams that he himself is determined to fill with his own resurrected glory. And it starts here in the synagogue in Nazareth. He's rejected, but he's rejected for us. This is what I'm trying to say. You are going to get rejected. Some of you are super concerned about the spiritual state of your children. All of you have kids are. There are going to be times, a lot of you, you live in this day to day. Like your kids have rejected you. Maybe not you personally, maybe you personally though. Maybe what you believe, a lot of you are concerned that your kids grow up in the faith and then they've walked away from it. Some of them are still Christians, but you don't know where they're at. Some of them are like turned out in ways that you just like, oh man, I wish they wouldn't do that. But everybody, every one of you is on mission to your kids and your grandkids and you're all worried about them. And what I'm saying here is that when they reject you, that's actually fitting in with God's plan to rescue the world. Please go back to 2 Corinthians and read what Paul is saying. He's rejected. That makes him a true apostle. Jesus is rejected. Does that mean that Jesus is a failure? No, it's a part of Jesus' plan to rescue the world. You're going to be on mission with your own family, with your friends, whatever the mercy ministry that you're on. And when you get rejected, I do not want you to think for a second that failure is happening because rejection is a part of the DNA of missional life. Look, I... We got a problem with this. And the problem, one of the problems is, let me be philosophical for a second. One of the problems is we're modernists. I know we're postmodernists, but we all live in the modern world. Part of being children of the Industrial Revolution is that we all believe in technology and technique, right? So if, if, my, if my iPhone is screwed up, you know, like I Google, what's, what the heck's wrong with my iPhone? And then like something will pop up, you know, some tech website says, do these five steps. I do the five steps, oh, it's working again. And I just assume because I'm a good modernist, I assume that's the way the world works. That's why if you go to Books A Million, you can find any number of books about like, you know, the six steps to making friends or eight steps to better finance or, you know, the 11 steps to, uh, you know, raising your kids. And we, we all do this, right? Like, I, like pastors spend tons of money going to these seminars and conferences where like some pastor of some powerful ministry is like, I'm going to tell you the five things we did at my church. Like, and there I am, like, writing stuff down. This is going to work at St. James. It, that's not the way. 
Like that stuff doesn't work. It's technique. It's fine for iPhones, but it's not fine for human beings. Human beings aren't math problems. We're not computers. But we think that they are, and so we do the technique. Like I, I raised my kids right, you know? I like taught them, and then I loved them, and then I keep on talking to them, and I, I try to be gentle sometimes, and I try to be firm when I need to. And that's great. You should do all that stuff, but it's technique. Do it, but it's not going to lead to Good kids. You know what leads to good kids? Or saved kids? I don't know, good kids. Who knows what that even means anymore, right? There's no good or evil. There's only power, and those too weak to seek it. There's no such thing as good kids. Uh, you know what's going to lead to, 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 to kingdom growth, kingdom fruit, kingdom success? The, re- the rejection of Jesus Christ and our participation in it. Embrace it. Do not be put off when your missional work is rejected. God is at work doing big things that you cannot even see. Last point, and then I'll be done. Promise. Don't give up on the story. Don't give up on the story. Some of you have spent years praying for your kids, or you spent years investing in a particular ministry, and you're like, people just aren't showing up, and the people who are aren't interested, or whatever it is. Don't give up hope, because the story is never over until it's over. Here's what I mean. Jesus goes to Nazareth. He's completely rejected. You know who rejects him? The people who are mentioned by name here, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. You remember Mark chapter 3? Do Jesus' brothers and sisters believe in him or not? No, they don't. Remember Mark chapter 3? They think he's nuts. They're like, go get him. He's embarrassing the family. Let's bring him home and like coop him up inside for a few days until he can get his head straight. James does not believe in Jesus. James is not one of the followers of Jesus. It doesn't look like James is even a follower of Jesus when Jesus dies. James is a part of the group here that's rejecting Jesus in Nazareth. 17 years later, though, James is going to give his life. He's going to be martyred in Jerusalem for confessing that his brother, Jesus, is the Lord of the universe. Don't give up planting. Don't give up watering. You know, you look at that, you look at the ground there, and some of you have been looking at this ground for years, this mission ground and whatever it is, and it's, it looks cold and barren and sterile, and you're like, nothing's happening here. But I'm just telling you, do what Jesus did. Keep watering. Keep sowing. Like that seed is germinating under there. It might be years after you die, but that seed is going to burst to life in the power of the Holy Spirit and bear much fruit. That's what the kingdom does. All right, stand with me. Let's pray. And we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for, uh, this is a weird thing to pray, but Thank you for telling, about, tell, telling us in Mark's gospel about this apparent lack of success on Jesus' part. I, it seems weird, but like it's encouraging. It's encouraging to know that failure is a part of the program. Uh, failure, it, it's not really failure, but like suffering is a part of the program. Being rejected, being ignored is a part of the program. Only a God like you could turn failure into a success. Only a God like you could turn death into life. Only a God like you could turn crucifixion into resurrection. God, help us to live in this, in in our own lives, but especially this morning when we're on mission. Help us to remember and to realize and to live in the hope that you bring fresh life out of barren ground, that you bring dead bodies up out of graves, that you brought your son Jesus back to life. God, help us to live in that. Give us hope in that resurrection. Lord, in your mercy.
God, we thank and praise you this morning uh, here on July 4th uh, for our country, always, but it seems appropriate, especially today, to thank you for the country that you've given us. And we know it's not perfect, but we thank you so much that we live in a place where historically we've been allowed to uh, meet like this and to talk about you without any sort of fear of interference. And it's a real incredible blessing. God, help us not to take that for granted, but help us not to be lazy because of it either. God, help us to love our country the way that you love our country. Help us not to idolize it and make it some sort of nationalistic goal. Help us not to, um, help us not to disdain it, though, since it is a gift from you, God. Help us to love it like we love our mothers. Uh, it's not perfect, God, but it's ours. It's the one that you and your sovereign love and wisdom have put us in. And so we pray that you would bless our country and that you would make it strong and that you would turn the hearts of our people to you, and that you would bless our president and our Congress people and our um, uh, state, uh, state uh, Congress people and our local officials, that you would give them a deep sense of righteousness and justice and mercy, and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would allow all of us to see that only the Lordship of your Son, Jesus Christ, provides the platform with which true righteousness and justice and mercy can be acted out. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with, like, as I was preaching the sermon and preparing for it, I was just thinking about all the people I know who are struggling with missional frustration and things not going the way you want all the time, and especially for all of the dear people here who are weighted down and burdened by... Um, concerned for the state of the souls of their children and their children's children. Uh, God, give them hope and comfort. Help them to see that uh, the kingdom promises that you've made to them and their family and baptism are powerful and strong and that you are a promise-keeping God. Help us not to be turned away by apparent failure, but to look to your cross for hope. We pray this in, um, Lord, in your mercy. We pray this only because your son shed his blood for us, covered us up with his holy blood so that we can come into your presence. And when you look at us, Father, you see your perfect daughters and sons. You call us perfect in your son, Jesus. And so we pray these prayers with boldness in his name. Amen. Confess with me, if you can, the words of the Apostles' Creed uh, found in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Find in me thine own. 
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around, find somebody you maybe haven't talked to recently and experience the power of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ by having a conversation. Go in peace.